and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And I'm Jason. And today we're going to be talking about 19th century author Louisa May Alcott. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast, and pay respects to their elders past and present. We recognise them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. I have some content warnings for this episode. There is a brief discussion of chattel slavery of black people in the US in the 19th century. The US Civil War is here and death and injury caused by the Civil War. There will be some discussion of acute and chronic illness as well as death from illness. There is also some well-intentioned but damaging 19th century medical practices (laughs) and a death in childbirth. All in all, I wouldn't say it's like a notably bleak episode, but it is very 19th century. If any of that sounds like something that you would prefer not to listen to, we have eight seasons of other content for you to listen to. No hard feelings. As a researcher, I was extremely fortunate in that Louisa May Alcott kept extensive journals and wrote a lot of letters throughout her life. Love that. It was extremely well documented. I guess she was a writer. She was a writer, um, and she drew a lot of her fictional writing from her real life, and so she kept detailed journals in order to provide, like, future inspiration for her writing. Oh, cool. I was going to say, like, sometimes that makes it hard because biographers will just kind of assume that bits in fiction are real when we don't have evidence of that. But if she kept detailed journals to create fiction for her life, that kind of dodges that problem. Yeah, she kept detailed journals, and when you look in the manuscripts of her journals, you can see she's added, like, later notes that's like, this is this character. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, I love Louisa. So that's very good of her and did make it quite easy for a researcher. I do want to make some comments about her journals, though. She was very particular about the way she maintained her papers. She was very aware that they might be of public interest in the future. And for that reason, she would sometimes note that she had destroyed papers or letters that she felt would breach the privacy of herself and her family. At least, like, obviously she's fully within her rights to do that from a historian's perspective. It's, you know, a loss. But at least she noted where they were destroyed, so we, like, know what's missing. The other thing that I have to say about her writing is that she very much considered optimism and contentedness with your lot as important virtues, good, strong American virtues. Yep. And so there's a lot of stuff in her journals which she presents positively but may not actually have been a positive experience. I've read Little Women. Yes. <laughs> that is the vibe of that whole series. I have not read Little Women, but I have seen the movie, and yeah, it has the same vibe. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so she was born on November 29th in 1832 to philosopher and experimental educator Amos Bronson Alcott, usually called Bronson. What's being an experimental educator mean, or...? He ran some weird schools. That makes sense, because, as I said, I've read Little Women, and in Little Women, they run some weird schools and do some experimental education. (laughs) (laughs) It's all Um, coming together. (laughs) Her mother was Abby May, an activist and social worker. Oh, cool. When I read this, I was like, they had social workers in 1832, and it turned out that Abby was one of the very first paid social workers in the state of Massachusetts. So. Abby was like, I have an idea. What if social workers existed and I was one? I think yeah. we need them. Yeah. <laughs> what if I did some things and you paid me for them? Yes. <laughs> 
So Louisa was the second Alcott child after Anna, who was born two years earlier in 1831. At the time, Abby and Bronson were living in Germantown, now a subsumed suburb of the city of Philadelphia, but at the time it was a village in its own right. Mm -hmm. In September of 1834, the little family moved to Boston, where Bronson started up an experimental school called the Temple School. It was called the Temple School because it was held in a Masonic lodge on Temple Street, not because of the religious connotation there. I mean, Masons are religious, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to be clear that Temple wasn't like a religious choice of word. Ah, okay. Um, I was just like, the building is already called the Temple and that's where school is. Yeah. So it did have a religious affiliation, but that wasn't related to the word Temple. It didn't really have a religious affiliation. He was just renting a room in this Masonic lodge. Okay, I see. I I mean, it had a religious affiliation, but not that one. (laughs) (laughs) This is a mess. There are are so many layers of religion, but also not going on here. I'll, I'll get into it. So, Bronson was a transcendentalist. Ooh, fancy. What's that? I literally thought you would say that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> What's that, Irene? I wrote in my notes. <laughs> I didn't know you put these things in your notes. <laughs> I would love to know how often we, like, hit your predictions. Working. <laughs> you always hit when I expect you to say something. You don't always say it word for word. But okay. when I, like, have discussion sections you always obligingly discuss (laughs) good so transcendentalism was a loose religious spiritual philosophical christian belief system which developed in new england which is where boston is it's on the east coast of the u.s thank you for not making us play geography (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like the northeastern part yeah correct jason knows geography so in its essence Transcendentalism understood that God was found in nature rather than in organized religion or anything like that. That individual humans, being part of nature, were inherently good and society was a corrupting force which tainted humans and turned them bad, essentially. Okay, I was enjoying points one and two. I'm more dubious on point three. Society is a corrupting force which turns us bad. Yeah, um, (laughs) it has some good points and some questionable points as a belief system, as does every belief system. On that logic, transcendentalists were, as I said, opposed to organised religion, valued intuition as an inherent and natural ability over intellectualism and empirical knowledge in a lot of contexts. Mm -hmm. So they very much value the subjective over the objective. Okay, Mm -hmm. yeah. And they valued self-reliance and small independent communities over cities, large-scale Mm-hmm. large-scale communities. They thought that trade and finance were evil. <laughs> <laughs> this is a mixed bag of beliefs, although it's... obviously given the historical and social context at the time, like a lot of those things carry different connotations than what they would now. Yeah, yeah. In a lot of ways, what sounds like a wild libertarian belief now was just some quiet Christian belief at the time. Well, I think it's also, just, yeah, like the nature of what it meant to live in a city at that time. Yeah. It's very different to what it is now. The nature of being like, you know, somewhat independent versus like, you know, being within a community was very different at the time. Like there's just yeah, a lot of, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of differences between American cities in the 19th century compared to now. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. In the context of education, which has some effect on Louisa because she's educated by her father to a great extent. He understood that children's learning was best done through a combination of guided play and moral and religious conversation, and that being closer to the natural state of humankind, having had less time to be corrupted by society, the students also had much to teach the teacher. 
that's pretty wholesome. Yeah, his schools seem to be fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's good. The Temple School initially did quite well. It was a small school. It had a class of about 25, most of whom came from like the Boston intellectual class. Mm-hmm. And then in late 1836, Bronson published two volumes of Conversations with Children Upon the Gospels which were recordings of the chats he had with his children in class about the Bible. You know how you see those Twitter threads where teachers post like, you know, here's the most insane things my students said this week or whatever. I'm just picturing that. Like, children say some weird stuff (laughs) (laughs) that doesn't make any sense and isn't like an enlightening thought on the gospel. (laughs) Yeah, it's literally just like recorded in like script format. I would love to know how faithful it is to what the kids actually said to him. I get the impression that it was... I wouldn't say unfaithful, but definitely very selective. And, like, that's fair enough, because yeah. there's not that much point except entertainment publishing the random stuff your kid says when you're trying to make them talk about Jesus. Um, I mean, he thought of it more as education than entertainment. He was more trying to be like, look, this is what my education system can do. Look at how thoughtful and intelligent these children are. Yeah, yeah, that was what I meant. Like, there's no point publishing the off-topic stuff the kids yeah. say, because that's just entertaining. That's not actually like, hey, this is my education system at work. Unfortunately, Bronson had misjudged the general public. Local newspapers attacked him for allowing children to create their own analysis and interpretations of the gospel, (laughs) which was not a cool thing to do. And in addition, the conversations showed him being quite open with the children's questions about things like birth and conception and circumcision, things Mm -hmm. which all happen in the gospel. And 19th century Boston was just, like, not prepared for that kind of sex education. (laughs) Okay... By the middle of 1837, following the controversy, he had only 11 students. In the following year, the school admitted a black child and enrolments dropped to only five students, three of whom were the three Alcott daughters. Okay, so two students who were not there because they were his kids. Yeah, basically. I see. The school closed down in somewhere between 1839 and 1840. Okay. Um, Around the same time, the Alcott family had their final child, Abigail May Alcott, named after her mother. Yep. The Temple School's failure left Bronson $6,000 in debt. That's a lot of money then, I assume. That is a huge amount of money then, but he didn't seem to be disillusioned. After a few years of struggling to make money as a freelance lecturer, he went over to England, where he had a number of supporters, and started seeking financial backers to set up a utopian commune. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds nice. I liked it, yeah, his response to, you know, hmm, this small-scale venture has failed. What if I did a much larger venture? Indeed. (laughs) Indeed. How will it go? You will find out very shortly. (laughs) I'm ready. In 1843, Alcott and a supporter from England called Charles Lane bought a 90-acre farm on which they founded a utopian commune called Fruitlands. That's not a very good name. <laughs> that's what they called it, Fruitlands. It's, it's, I don't know. Yeah, that's really not a great name. No. Like, yeah. like F R O O T or F R U I T. F R U I T. That's land. a little disappointing. I was kind of expecting O O based on the like you know Dutch and German oh, New yeah. England uh, vibes. I'm sorry that they did not call it like Fruit Loops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Their intentions at Fruitlands were to create a self-reliant community based on transcendentalist principles. So here are some of the principles that they hoped to embody. Okay. So no animal products or labor were used. The community was vegan. Um, Interesting. The Alcott family was vegetarian, even when they weren't having this 
utopian, utopian vegan commune moment in their lives. They were generally consistently vegetarian. Well, do you know how normal that was at the time? Were there many vegetarians around? Or was that like a thing very specific to them? Louisa never talked about it as a huge deal, but she mm. always seems, she's always comfortable eating meat when she's not at home. I know there are quite a lot of early, like, women's rights activists who were vegetarian. I don't know what the connection between women's rights activists and vegetarianism is, but I know that was a thing. I think in general, there's a connection between human rights activists and animal rights yeah, activists yeah. in a lot of ways. Like, But, like, specifically for women's rights activists, I know it was common in the 19th century. I mean, I guess you can also probably make some kind of analogy between the ways that women were treated as property and free labour yeah. in the 19th century and the way that animals were treated. I guess that's true, um, unfortunately. Aside from the animal products, they abstained from alcohol and all stimulants, including coffee and tea. Root vegetables were considered ungodly, coming from <laughs> under the ground. I'm sorry. Okay. Like, all this so far, I was like, yeah, okay, you know, people make these decisions in their lives pretty, pretty commonly, but then, like, root vegetables? But, 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 why would you do that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. They intended to subsist mainly on grains, like leafy vegetables and fruit. Okay, hence Fruitlands. Hence Fruitlands. <laughs> Is that actually why they called it Fruitlands? I guess so. <laughs> that was kind of... I don't know the reasoning behind the name. <laughs> I just assumed it was because they grew a lot of fruit there. Mm. Yeah. No heated water or artificial lighting would be used. <laughs> this life has sounded worse and worse. <laughs> I'll tell you how it goes in a minute. And only linen clothing was permitted as cotton was forbidden being made from slave labour. Okay, a reasonable call. A reasonable call. Yeah, we've got like reasonable, reasonable, unreasonable, unreasonable, reasonable. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. By this time, Louisa was 10 years old. She would turn 11 at Fruitlands. Okay. So this is the period from which we have the first of her letters and journals. Mm Mm-hmm. These journals, she very much explicitly wrote for the audience of her mother. There are, like, notes in the journal that she addresses directly to her mother, and her mother will address replies to her. Oh, yeah. So it's like when you go into a school on Monday in primary school and you have to write an account of your weekend, and your teacher writes, that sounds very exciting. Yeah, yeah. Correct your spelling. (laughs) The notes from her mother are like, I love hearing about all your thoughts and doings, Louisa. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So she records in her diary a relatively positive experience of the Fruitlands situation, um, including incredible notes such as, I rose at five and had my bath. I love cold water! Exclamation mark. Good for you, Louisa. Good for you. <laughs> I, look, the fact that we know that she was writing these for her mother yeah, uh, makes me have some doubts about the veracity of that statement. Yeah. Uh, you can really, and like, I don't know if Louisa's sisters wrote journals, but you can really picture Louisa and her sisters sitting around writing their journals together and being like, I love the cold <laughs> bath, mum. Can I... we light the fire while she's out of the room? <laughs> I love not to eat root vegetables. <laughs> sure do you hate potatoes. <laughs> I mean, maybe she did love cold baths. Maybe she did. Maybe she did. I, I don't really think know. that that's true. She did not ever mention loving cold baths again in her journal, but this just stood out to me as a thing that made me be like, are you sure, Louisa? Who are you writing this for? <laughs> as an adult, she published a satirical short story called Transcendental Wild Oats. Um, drawn from her experience as a a child at Fruitlands. The story describes a very Fruitlands-esque utopian commune, and it recounts an event where their grain crop is about to be destroyed by a storm, and the women and children essentially get together to save the grain crop while the men are off somewhere having deep philosophical discussions (laughs) and contributing nothing. I see. So... 
Make of that what you will. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So how many people were at Fruitland? Good question. There's no record of, and there were no, like, entry requirements to Fruitland, so we don't know exactly. There were 14 permanent members, but other people arrived and left. Okay. And so the Alcott family at this time is six people, right? Yeah, it's the Alcott family and the Lane family, I believe. Okay, yeah. And that's basically it. And that's That's basically the the core of this community. Yeah. Having said all of those things about Fruitlands, Louisa does seem to have had a positive experience of her unconventional upbringing in terms of what it allowed her as a girl or as... (laughs) It's gender time. I made the decision to consider... Louisa, a gender non-conforming woman. Okay. Um, but that's a decision that I made. Okay. Well, um, I mean, I guess you can do that. And if we decide to disagree, yeah, we can. I think that there are definitely other positions to be made here, but we'll get into gender later. As far as her upbringing went, it allowed her a lot of freedoms as a girl that she might not have been able to have in another family, in another setting. She recalls herself as being a tomboy. Mm-hmm. Um, she says... In a quote later in life, no boy could be my friend until I had beaten him in a race, and no girl if she refused to climb trees, leap fences, and be a tomboy with me. So she was a very rough and tumble child. Anyway, so in that context, it was positive, but farming is hard, and Mm -hmm. random academics from Boston aren't crash hot at it. Shocked. So as winter got closer, rules about artificial light and animal labour were bent as Bronson and Charles Lane realised that they wouldn't have enough food to last the winter. On October 13th, Louisa writes, We went to the barn and husked corn. It was good fun. We worked until 8 o'clock and had lamps. Um, And later on in the year, they also got an ox to help them with ploughing fields. By December of 1843, it was clear that the community was unsustainable and it disbanded. So they didn't really last a year? No, they lasted, I believe, seven months. Okay, so a summer. Yeah. 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 There was was a quote from it. I'm trying to think who it was. It might have been Ralph Waldo Emerson. It might have been Henry Thoreau. It was one of those dudes (laughs) um, who knew the Alcott family and came to check out the community and was like, look, I'm very impressed at the moment, but we'll see how they're going come winter. (laughs) (laughs) And how they were going was not. Was not. Anyway, the community disbanded. The Alcotts moved out into rented accommodation until a combination of an inheritance from Abigail's family and Ralph Waldo Emerson's financial assistance allowed them to buy a house. Nice. When will Ralph Waldo Emerson help me buy a house? <laughs> Just wondering. <laughs> I'm sorry. If you're listening, Ralph. <laughs> as a consequence of how Bronson was as a person, um, <laughs> the family wasn't wealthy. Shocked. Shocked. Abigail ran an employment agency to connect people looking for work to people looking for domestic labourers, essentially. And at other times she was paid to help distribute charity donations such as clothes and food to the poor Mm -hmm. by like charitable organizations as the children got older they also contributed to the family's income the sense that louisa has of her duty as the family breadwinner Mm -hmm. in this time is something which carries throughout her entire life so again i've seen little women yeah (laughs) yeah she very much believes that it's her job and her responsibility not her sister's Not her parents, just her. She's going to do it herself. So, not to assume that Little Woman is autobiographical. It's extremely but- <laughs> autobiographical, and she's very honest about it. Like, she's literally like, when they're like, do you want to write a book for girls? She's like, not really, but I guess if they find my family's 
experience is entertaining. I'll write those down. I'll write those down <laughs> with different names. And she like checks with her mum and her sisters. Oh, yeah. Before yeah. She, so she's like honestly autobiographical about it. She's like, I changed the names. I arranged things so it had a narrative arc. <laughs> and that's about it. Yeah. Nice, nice, nice. So yeah, what I was going to say is in Little Women, like Joe definitely has the feeling that she needs to like be the one to support her family. And it seems very much like it's because she sees herself as the man of the house. Yes. Would yes. you say that's what's happening here? I would say that's very similar to what's happening with Louisa. I think that Joe's expressions of masculinity are much more overtly about masculinity than mm-hmm. Louisa's. When Louisa expresses a desire to be a man, it's often couched in things like her desire for independence Mm. Um, or her desire to support her family or things like that rather than a direct desire for masculinity she wants to be a man so she can fight in the civil war or she wants to be a man so that she can have financial independence and things like that so it's about the i mean obviously like we'll talk more about her gender i'm sure but it's more about the social roles that are available to a man than yeah inherent masculinity yeah there may not also be inherent masculinity yeah which is to say and we will talk later about the gender feelings that she puts into Joe's character mm-hmm. because like I said she's very openly autobiographical about that and yeah. in a lot of ways it's much more direct and explicit mm-hmm. than what she writes herself about her own gender the general pattern of Louise's life at this stage is she'll move away from the family home which is outside Boston at Concord mm-hmm. um, she'll move away from the family home for a few months at a time rent cheap rooms in Boston, take whatever work she can, send any money she saves back home, and then she'll come back home and hang out with her family for a while and then do it all again. Okay. So she takes whatever work she can find, sewing, domestic labor, teaching, governessing, and in any spare time she has, she writes. Her writing habits are completely insane at this stage. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, sometimes... An idea just comes over me and I work all day at like my cleaning job or whatever. And then at night I plan my novel and then I go to work again in the morning and I'm like, Louisa, what are you doing? When is bed? When is bed? Sometimes she's like, I wrote it for 14 hours yesterday. (laughs) When you said that completely insane, I was just thinking of how in Little Women, Joe like goes up into the attic and locks herself in there to write. She has like a special little hat she wears, like her writing (laughs) hand. And just locks herself in there for days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's what Louisa is like. Does she have she's a special just hat? Like, she doesn't. She doesn't ever mention a special hat, but she's very much okay. like it just came over me, and I locked myself away for three weeks to write. Yeah, um, yeah. Little Women takes her, I think, two and a half months from when the publisher is like, "Hey, would you like to write a book for girls?" to the point where she sends the completed draft to him. That's pretty. It's four hundred and something pages. That's wild, especially when you think of like writing by hand. Yeah. It's just so much. Like, imagine how cramped her hand must have been. (laughs) It is something that she talks about later in life. She has, like, arthritic trouble with her thumb, and she's like, my thumb doesn't move properly. Oh, yeah, from holding a pen. From holding a pen so much. Later in life, she, like, writes advice to younger friends she knows that are like, make sure you use, like, a cork pen holder or something whenever you write. Otherwise, you'll have to hold your pen between two fingers like me with my useless thumb. (laughs) (laughs) I really thought that her advice was going to be become ambidextrous. Yeah, that Swat would have been when good you get advice. <laughs> she did not do that, but that would have been good advice. Do you um, know if she was left-handed or right-handed? Key information. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Unacceptable. I think she was right-handed, but I don't know. Okay. During this time, she got her first book published, an anthology called Flower Fables, which was based on stories she used to tell to Alan Emerson, the daughter of Ralph Waldo. Hmm. 
when they were children. That was essentially the pattern of Louisa's life for the next 10 years. Sorry, how old was she at the start of this period? At the start of this, she would have been late teens, so like 18-ish. Okay. okay. Um, that's honestly older than I was expecting, so that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Because th- this sounds like an exhausting period of her life. She is an exhausting person for her whole <laughs> life. Every scrap of energy she has, she's like, I will use it with interest. I hope she's okay. In April of 1858... Louise's younger sister, Lizzie, passed away. Um, This was due to complications from the scarlet fever she had had a few years beforehand. Again, Mm -hmm. if you're familiar with Little Women, you'll be like, I know which sister this was. Yeah, 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 yeah. She didn't didn't even change the name for this one. No. Like, in Little Women, it's Beth. Yeah. She often calls Lizzie Beth in, like, her letters. Okay. So Um, that was the least hidden character of all. Yeah. Sometimes she's like Lizzie. Sometimes she's like Betty. Sometimes she's like Beth. Just whatever you're feeling on the day. Yeah. So that was the least hidden character of all, possibly because Lizzie was already dead. Oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. By the time that she published the book. Yeah. I don't really know. At the end of the next month, in May, her older sister Anna married John Pratt. Louisa perceived both of these events as a kind of bereavement. Mm -mm. A breaking up of the home and the sisterhood that she had Mm -hmm. sort of identified with and built her life around. With regard to Anna's marriage, she writes, Annie and John may be married in June, so we are full of work and I am full of woe, for I think it's a very trying thing to have men come and fetch away a body's (laughs) relations in this sort of way. After the wedding, she writes a letter to her sister that essentially frames the wedding as a funeral, saying, After the bridal train had departed, the mourners withdrew to their respective homes, and the bereaved family solaced their woe by washing dishes and bolting the remains of the funeral baked meats. Is this to the sister who got married? Yeah, yeah. She writes this straight to Anna. She's like, dear Mrs. Pratt. I feel as though you had died. Um, Unacceptable. Louisa, that's very rude. Yeah, I feel like really, like, it's very hard to know how that letter would be received. And depending on the relationship between the sisters and, like, the headspace Anna was in at that moment, that could be, like, kind of touching and funny. Or that could be like, wow, that's really inappropriate. Anna, as far as I can tell, I don't know what Anna wrote back to that letter, but as far as I can tell, Anna was extremely happy in her new married (laughs) home and doesn't seem to have been particularly hurt in her relationship with Louisa by this sentiment. Okay. Um, By the time Louisa has the chance to come and visit her sister in the new house, she's a little bit more cheerful about the whole prospect, but she writes, Saw Nan in her nest. Nan is her nickname for Anna. Saw Nan in her nest, where she and her mate live like a pair of turtle doves. Very sweet and pretty, but I'd rather be a free spinster and paddle my own canoe. (laughs) (laughs) Get off you, Louisa. Go paddle that canoe. Go and paddle that canoe. This is a sentiment which will reappear constantly in Louisa's life. Mm-hmm. Not specifically in canoe format, though. But that she values her independence. <laughs> but that she values her independence and she values the concept of single womanhood mm-hmm. as an aspect of her identity. On April the 12th, 1861. So she's now like 29-ish? Yeah, she's okay. late 20s. Anna was 30 when she got married. Okay, yeah. Um, on April the 12th, 1861, I don't know how well you two know your American history. I cannot tell you what happened on April the 12th, 1861. Uh, is it the Civil War? It is the Civil War. <laughs> well done. <laughs> okay. The war was declared. The Alcott family had always been heavily involved in the anti-slavery campaign, including being a stop on the Underground Railroad at times. Once again, and I swear this is the last time I'll say it, yes, I've seen Little Women. <laughs> Are they a stop on the Underground Railroad in the movie? 
Oh no, but like oh, okay. the, the Civil War and anti-slavery activism is a part of the yeah, yeah, yeah. Of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just wondering if they'd like included that in the movie because that's not in the book, but that would be a cool thing to show and would, add in. It would have been a cool thing. I don't think it's in the movie, but don't quote me on that because <laughs> I've yeah. seen it once. That's fair. It is something that comes up a lot in Louise's writing is that she'll write short stories and send them off to the Atlantic or send them off to somewhere and we'll get back a note in her diary that's like, they wouldn't publish it because of the anti-slavery. I see. Keep um, trying, Louisa. So I think often the works of hers that we get are the kind of toothless commercial works. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. And I, ha- I have read other things regarding Little Women about that. Like the fact, and I assume we'll discuss it, that Joe gets married to a man in Little Women. Yes. Like the yeah. fact that they wanted that to happen in her works, which she didn't want. Yeah. So, the Civil War started. Louisa responded to this news with extreme excitement in her journal. I want you to know that my note apparently says, Louisa responded to the news with excitement in her journal excitedly. That's just how excited she was. <laughs> I've often longed to see a war, she wrote, and now I have my wish. Okay, Louisa. I long to be a man, but as I can't fight, I will content myself with working for those who can. Today, in tweets that did not age well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is something um, that you get a lot with, like, World War One, right? Yeah. Mm. Like, and, and, you know, the Civil War was kind of the precursor to that, um, mm. of being, yeah. like, one of the first, like, modern industrialized wars yeah where the whole nation is going to war against an entire other nation and the death toll is just insane yeah 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 Yeah. Yeah. compared to like previous wars yeah it's one of those sentiments where you look at it from now and you're like imagine writing that imagine articulating that into words that's Mm. insane it seems so weird to us but yeah you're right it's very much what you see from like boys signing up to world war one yeah Yeah, because war was fundamentally different before those conflicts yeah 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 you know it just it wasn't anywhere near as lethal obviously there were still atrocities and things were still awful in a lot of ways but yeah it wasn't the same thing and i mean also there's the sort of information issue people don't have clear information about what war looks like yeah in the Mm. same way that Mm. we do now Oh, absolutely. In 1862, as she couldn't fight, Louisa signed up to be a nurse. I love nursing, she wrote in her diary, and I need somewhere to vent my energies. She had no real experience of nursing, though, beyond caring for ill friends and relatives like Lizzie when Lizzie was sick. (laughs) In order to prepare herself, she studied textbooks on the treatment of gunshot wounds, but essentially what they were looking for was not experienced nurses so much as women of good character who were matronly and sturdy. Mm-hmm. Is that because the work was more just like making sure the men were okay or because they just desperately needed anyone who would come into a field hospital? Like, was she being expected to do work that was beyond her, but they thought good character would carry her through, I guess is what I'm asking. Um, I would say it's a combination of the two. She is very much thrown in the deep end, but I don't mm-hmm. think that that's an unusual situation. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's like nurses normally went in more experienced. Mm-hmm. I think that the 19th century was just a very learn-on-the-job century. <laughs> well, I've talked to nurses who trained even in the 20th century before they kind of introduced tertiary, like, going to uni for nursing, and they're just kind of like, yeah, they put you in the hospital and you followed the other nurses around till you could do it. Yeah, and that's essentially what happened. In December 1862, she was summoned to the Union Hotel Hospital, Georgetown, in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. She arrived on December the 11th. I suspect that people who know something about U.S. history will be like, this is a ominous date. I think I've heard of George Dam. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope so. Yes. <laughs> um, if you did have to learn American history in high school, 
I know that many of our listeners are American, so this might happen to them. Um, (laughs) You might recognize this date as the beginning of the Battle of Fredericksburg. The Battle of Fredericksburg was one of the worst Union defeats in the Civil War. It was horribly one-sided. It was a bloodbath. Something like 12,000 Union casualties compared to something like 5,000 Confederate casualties. Mm-hmm. was a bad time. One newspaper wrote, it can hardly be in human nature for men to show more valour or generals to manifest less judgment than were perceptible on our side that day. So Louisa turns up at the hospital and within three days, this many wounded men turn up at the hospital. Okay. Not a great time. Not the best learning on the job experience. No. So she's launched straight into work, which ranges from cutting up food for people who are too weak to eat, washing wounded men, dusting floors, sewing bandages, helping people with amputations, okay. sewing up wounds. Okay. Um, you were going to ask, like, okay, these are all tasks that you can just kind of basically do the moment you walk in, but then you got to sewing up wounds, and I was like, never mind. <laughs> so it was an intense experience. Her journal entry of January the 1st, 1863 reads, I never began the year in a stranger place than this, 500 miles from home, alone among strangers, doing painful duties all day long, and leading a life of constant excitement in this great house surrounded by three or four hundred men in all stages of suffering, disease, and death. Though often homesick, heartsick, and worn out, I like it. I find real pleasure in comforting, tending, and cheering those poor souls who seem to love me and feel my sympathy, though unspoken, and acknowledge my hearty goodwill in spite of the ignorance, awkwardness, and bashfulness which I cannot help showing. (laughs) I like how she ended that. She's like, you know, I'm working really hard. The men really appreciate it. I am just incredibly awkward, but, you know, (laughs) we can all see past that. She is just incredibly chipper. She She is so chipper. She really is. Not long after that entry, Louisa recorded the following entry in her journal. Ordered to keep to my room being threatened with pneumonia, sharp pain in the side, cough, fever, and dizziness. Mm. She was diagnosed with typhoid pneumonia and treated with the American Civil War cure-all, calomel, which was mercurous chloride. That sounds bad. It is. Is that mercury? It is just straight up mercury. Okay. I mean, it's not mercury, it's mercury and chloride. (laughs) It's mercurous chloride. I don't believe the chloride element of this is damaging, but you do just get mercury poisoning when you take it. Okay. Does um, it... I don't necessarily expect you to know this. Does it actually have any positive effects on pneumonia? They gave it for literally everything. They were like, okay. toothache, mercury. Dysentery, mercury. Syphilis, try mercury. I wonder um, how this came to be. I don't really know. I mean, mercury looks cool. <laughs> it does The pills look were cool. blue, apparently. That does look cool. Seemed medicinal. <laughs> Just dye some sugar blue and save yourself the trouble. Um, Unfortunate. On January the 16th, Bronson arrived to bring her home. Good on you, Bronson. Um, so she returned to Concord to recover, delirious and feverish. A number of the symptoms that she experienced in the following weeks seem more attributable to mercury poisoning than pneumonia. <laughs> Well, (laughs) Um, she describes things like hair loss and having sores in her mouth, which are mercury poisoning symptoms and not pneumonia symptoms. Yes. Um, She also noted several of her fever hallucinations in her journal. 
including one which she called the most vivid and enduring, the conviction that I had married a stout, handsome Spaniard dressed in black velvet with very soft hands and a voice that was continually saying, lie still, my dear. This was probably my mother, I suspect, but with all the comfort I often found in her presence, there was blended an awful fear of the Spanish spouse who was always threatening to come after me, appearing out of closets, at windows, <laughs> threatening me dreadfully all night long. <laughs> I don't know how much we should try to psychoanalyze somebody's fever dreams, but that does seem pretty linked to her, like, desire to maintain her independence and not be, like, forced to become a wife. Yeah. <laughs> especially, especially given the way in which, like, all she recounts of this man is him being, like, quite affectionate and, like, yeah. loving, and, and yet she is clearly... Terrified. Like, terrified and betrays him in a very negative manner. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> And I do think it's something that's sort of worth bringing up as well when you think about the link she kind of made when Anna got married between marriage and essentially the death of a woman yeah, in some yeah. ways or like mm-hmm. the grief of a family. So I don't really want to psychoanalyze that too deeply <laughs> except for the fact that she wrote afterwards that this was the most vivid and most enduring of her fever dreams. Mm. Something that stayed with her after the fever went, which suggests that it did kind of like mean something to her. Yeah, exactly. So she did recover after a lengthy convalescence. However, for the rest of her life, she would suffer from nerve pain, stiffness of the joints, headaches, and other assorted ailments, which gradually grew more severe until her death. This has often been attributed to the long-term effects of mercury poisoning. That's very sad. This may not actually be the case. I did start doing some research about this, and there was a paper that a couple of doctors wrote where they studied her diaries, which were very detailed about her symptoms, and concluded that a number of her long-term symptoms are not common long-term effects of mercury poisoning, and the fact that the condition got much more severe later in her Mm. life, when as far as they could tell, she was not continuing to take mercury, suggested that it was more likely to be an autoimmune disease. Um, They also noted a rash on her cheeks in a later portrait of her, which they thought pointed to lupus, an autoimmune disease. So it may not have been mercury poisoning. Honestly, after I spent a while Googling the symptoms of mercury poisoning, I was like, enough of that. I'm disturbed. That's fair. And, you know, at the end of the day, we, we don't need to know the medical, like, cause. I think probably what's key to us is that she did have some kind of chronic yeah. illness. That- yeah, she did have chronic illness for the rest of her life. Um, but Wikipedia told me there was insufficient evidence to draw conclusions about the cause, and I decided that I would trust Wikipedia on that matter eventually. <laughs> don't don't follow that advice, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> never, never do that, listeners. <laughs> did you hear how Irene did some research, read some scientific papers, and perhaps checked the Wikipedia footnotes? <laughs> Before trusting Wikipedia. (laughs) By March, she is recovering. She writes, began to get about a little, sitting up nearly all day. So it's taken her some, maybe a month, maybe two months to get to sitting up nearly all day from being brought home. Okay. It's almost like she had a serious illness and was poisoning herself. Almost could be that. Yes, could be both. While she's recovering, Anna and John had a baby. The whole family was delighted about this. On the 28th, Louisa wrote, Father came home from Boston, bringing word that Nan had had a fine boy. We all screamed out when he burst in, snowy and beaming. Then Mother began to cry, May to laugh, and I to say, There, I knew it wouldn't be a girl. We were all so glad it was safely over, and a jolly little lad was added to the feminine family. (laughs) My jolly little lad. When Louisa was finally well enough to go out and see the child, she pronounced him in her journal, ugly but promising. (laughs) Honest, honest. Yeah, yeah. 
this is one of those things that's funny about her writing is that she's equally, like you said, so chipper, unreasonably chipper, and then just like bluntly honest constantly. She's like, the baby was ugly. It sucks, sister. I wish you weren't dead to me. (laughs) (laughs) But I sure do love a cold bath and hate potatoes. Imagine that life. (laughs) I cannot. I cannot, and I refuse to try. I mean, I guess if we have her journals for her whole life, like, we're gonna get every emotion in there at some point. We are, we are. And for her whole life, she describes herself, even in childhood, as being prone to moods. Ah, yes. Um, Which. Capital M, moods. Yeah. She later writes a book which she calls Moods, which is not actually (laughs) autobiographical for once. So she turned her nursing experiences into a publication entitled Hospital Sketches, based on the details from her journals and the letters she had written home. So it's essentially like a collection of short stories about things that happened to her in the hospital. She had a relatively low opinion of the sketches, saying of her publisher, they thought them witty and pathetic. I didn't, but I wanted money. Actually, empathetic means, like, empathetic yeah. rather than... Yeah, pathetic, pathetic in the 19th century <laughs> sense, where it, like, evokes emotion yeah. rather than yeah. pathetic is in God. That's pathetic. Yeah. <laughs> this is characteristic of her opinion of a lot of her works. She often describes her writing with terms like my little scribblings or my rubbishy tales. It's making me think of when Eli goes to his podcast research and he says he's going to do his little tippy-tappies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The little tippy-tappies. <laughs> This is particularly characteristic of how she talks about the stories that she writes for financial gain. Mm -hmm. She's constantly publishing short stories for financial gain, which she sort of thinks of as like trashy and easy money. And behind the scenes is working on something that she considers to be serious literature. What's the serious literature? You'll hear about it in a sec. Um, (laughs) So, (laughs) Hospital Sketches was hugely successful. It was a bestseller. Bronson was like, Louisa didn't think very much of it, but honestly, I read it and it was fantastic. We should all be unsurprised. (laughs) My child is incredible. (laughs) My child is a genius. My thoughts on education are clearly valuable. Yes. (laughs) That's Bronson for you. Yeah, like, I mean, it's not like Bronson's going to come out and be like, yeah, my children are not that gifted and, uh, you know don't have upstanding moral values or like like (laughs) even insofar as any parent would ever like denigrate their children like that in public he is especially not going to he tested his experimental education techniques on them he's specifically like my whole career depends on my children being like upstanding contributing members of society Mm. i'm sure that bronson also just believed that yeah i'm sure he did i'm sure he did bronson doesn't appear to be a very worldly man but louisa does love him okay. <laughs> and i think that he loves his family <laughs> that's simple inspired by the success of sketches louisa worked on another book called moods which she considered to be her first serious novel Ooh. the basic plot summary of moods is that a young girl i think she's 18 at the start of the novel called sylvia has two suitors one is a respectable good and dependable man somewhat older than her and the other is a flighty but sexy man. So every young adult novel you've ever read. Exactly. But there's a plot <laughs> twist. Ooh, what's the twist? So, first The Sylvia... men fall in love with each other. No comment. Wait, <laughs> So, Sylvia chooses to marry the more dependable man, even though she doesn't really feel passion for him, but soon becomes aware that she's made the wrong choice and is trapped in an unhappy marriage. Okay. When both men find out... They leave her to have a trip around Europe together while they come to terms with the situation. (laughs) 
So So when you say when the men find out, you mean when the men find out that she doesn't really love her husband and she's still in love with the flighty man. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they leave together. That's like, ah, uh, we need to sort some stuff out. Yeah, they leave together to Europe. <laughs> That's very funny. And here are some things that I will tell you. They apparently become close in Europe while Sylvia is doing whatever she does at home. I didn't read the whole <laughs> book, so I can't tell you. So I assume that their contrasting personalities come to balance each other out and yes. they both, you know, bring out the best in each other. And then yes. they come home and all three live oh. together. Go so on. So I will read you a scene from their return home. Okay. Um, Warwick laid an arm about Moore's shoulders, as he had often done of late when they were alone, drawing him gently on again and with a touch of playfulness to set both at ease. Tell me your plans. <laughs> Would you like to comment now or in a moment when no, I finish No, 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 let's finish, finish the scene, please. Tell me your plans, my cup of gold, and let me lend a hand towards filling your brim full of happiness. Sorry, are they talking to each other or Sylvia? Yes, to each other. Warwick is talking to more. Is Warwick the steady one or the bad um, boy? So Warwick is the sexy one, more okay. is the dependable one. Okay. All right, so let's go back. Tell me your plans, my cup of gold, says Warwick to more, and let me lend a hand toward filling your brim full of happiness. You are going home? At once. You also, says more. Is it best? Yes, you came for me, I stay for you, and Sylvia waits for us both. <laughs> that sounds pretty nice and, uh, you know. I can't believe that Twilight is just moods fanfiction. Yeah, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> apparently. When does Vanessa come in? <laughs> <laughs> so, that happens, and then, having written herself into a trap that could only possibly be solved by a triad... Ah, um, uh, yes, a classic blunder of many writers. <laughs> a classic yes. blunder of many writers. I just want to laugh because I just said classic blunder that made me think of the, the scene in Princess Bride. <laughs> you have made one of the classic blunders. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> yes, that's the way that she has made one of the classic blunders. Um, so, she is forced to conveniently kill one of them off in a shipwreck in order to avoid this conclusion. Who so, dies? Warwick or Moore? Uh, Warwick dies. The sexy one. Yes. Okay. He dies in a shipwreck to save Moore's life on Aww. their journey home. I will read you what they say to each other in their farewell just before the tragic death in the black night with only heaven to see them the men kissed tenderly as women then hand in hand sprang out into the sea okay <laughs> so i don't know that's the book that louisa wrote that was her serious novel so i think there's a lot to unpack here that we don't really have time for today especially since jason and i haven't read this book but maybe we'll yeah. return to it sometime yeah i would be interested in a closer examination <laughs> of this book yes because obviously you know we're doing the standard thing we do where we're like sounds pretty gay but like was it <laughs> Yeah, I would I would love to look into this more. Yes, interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, look, that sounds intensely homoromantic. Kissed kissed passionately, did you kissed say? Kissed tenderly as women. Kissed tenderly as women. Hmm. And yes. then hand in hand sprang out into the sea. Yes. But what what did she mean by that? I don't know. I was thinking about that. Kissed in the same way that women kiss? Oh, no, no, no. I mean, oh. hand in hand sprang out into the sea. Are oh, they, like, a, on a ship? They're in a shipwreck. The ship is sinking, presumably. Oh, oh, right. There's a shipwreck, and they both spring out of the ship. Yeah. <laughs> this is... I want to see this filmed. <laughs> yeah. It was overall somewhat successful, but also somewhat controversial for its depiction of a complicated and emotionally unfaithful marriage. 
Fair enough, yeah. Some fear it isn't moral, Louisa wrote, because it speaks freely of marriage. My next book shall have no ideas in it, only facts, and the people shall be as ordinary <laughs> as possible. Then the critics will say it's all right. <laughs> I love Louisa. And she goes on to say, It was meant to show a life affected by moods. Not to be a discussion of marriage, which I knew little about, except observing that very few were happy ones. Unfortunate. Unfortunate indeed. Having said that, I would like to add that Anna and John's marriage was extremely happy, and she describes John as the one good man she has ever known sometimes. <laughs> I'm glad there was one. So there was one. Anna happened to be in it. In 1865, Louisa took on a position accompanying Anna Weld, the ill daughter of a wealthy shipping merchant, to Europe, where she was going to go and convalesce in the mountains in Switzerland and see some famous doctors and things like that. Why do I not get to convalesce in the mountains in Switzerland? <laughs> Frankly, I don't know why the position accompany a wealthy woman to Europe is no longer a job. <laughs> yeah, like ladies' companion it doesn't really exist yeah, anymore. Yeah, I think I would be great at it. <laughs> <laughs> While she was with Anna, because Anna was genuinely convalescing, her ability to see the sights and do tourism was somewhat limited. She talks about going on walks while Anna is resting, mm -hmm. but she can't do everything that she wants to. This didn't stop her from developing what may be the only romantic relationship of her life. Ooh. With a young Polish man in his early 20s, Ladislas Winewski. Her first meeting with Ladislas is as a fellow boarder in a boarding house that they stayed in in France. She describes him as a young Pole with whom we struck up a friendship. Ladislav Vinensky was very gay and agreeable, and being ill and much younger than us, we petted him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that this is a normal thing to say in the 19th century, but it doesn't it sound that way to us. So at this stage, Louisa is 33 and Ladislas is 20. Okay. Um, Sorry, is his name Ladislav or Ladislav? Ladislas with an S. Okay. Um, she calls him Laddie for short. <laughs> As you naturally would if you were an American and he was Polish, I guess. And that was his name, yeah. In December of the same year, she recorded the following in her journal. A little romance with LW. Well, well, well. A as little romance. Perhaps, just a little sprinkling of romance. Just a little, as a treat. At some point, she scratched out the following sentence so thoroughly that she's torn through the paper. But we can still read the sentence or no? No, we have no idea okay. what it is, but it is the only time that she damaged the paper in her journal. Interesting. She inserted a note later on, before A Little Romance, which read, couldn't be. Whatever happened to cause her to do this is unclear, but we do know they spent a fortnight alone in Paris. I will tell you about it very briefly. In May of 1866, she left the Weld family when Anna's uncle arrived to accompany her, after which she travelled alone back to Paris. Here she spent a fortnight with Laddie. A pleasant journey, she says. Laddie waiting for me in Paris. A very charming fortnight here. The days spent in seeing sights with Laddie. Evenings in reading, writing, hearing my boy play or resting. Saw me only all that I wished to see in very pleasant way. And on the 17th, reluctantly went to London. So that's all we know. They had a nice time in Paris. Good, good, good. Laddie then becomes part of the inspiration for the hot boy next door in Little Women. <laughs> I was literally just thinking like, Laddie... Laurie, you know, it's not a different name. <laughs> yeah, so Laddie is part of the inspiration for Hot Boy Next Door. Even more so um, Laddie and Teddy, actually, which is the other yeah. thing they call him, yeah. She had Hot. another friend around the same age called Alf Whitman, who was the inspiration for other parts of Laurie's character. She writes to them both and she's like, hey, just so you know, <laughs> I'm making a character out of the two of you. <laughs> I've merged you. I've merged you. I'm just really disappointed that we uh, didn't have a whole movie where Timothy Chalamet gets called Laddie. <laughs> <laughs> Laddie. Yes. 
in like increasingly emotional scenes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Somebody created an entire like extremely badly researched Louisa and Laddie movie for us. <laughs> yeah. I want it to be like art house and only spend those two weeks in Paris. <laughs> Good. Upon her return to the US. In May of 1868, Bronson Alcott approached Thomas Niles, a publisher who had published some of Louisa's books, with his intention to write a book. Thomas agreed to publish it, if only he could also convince Louisa to send him a story for girls. <laughs> it's very funny thing, like, fine, I'll publish your book as long as your daughter writes one. Like, <laughs> she writes the good books, Bronson. <laughs> He'll let you have yours, Bronson. You can write your weird philosophy texts. <laughs> that will sell, like, eight copies. <laughs> yeah. I feel like this really uh, calls back to Wild Oats at Fruitlands or whatever it was yeah. called. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Louisa carries this entire show. <laughs> yeah. Thomas Niles asked Louisa to write a girl's story. Louisa had little interest in this. She said, I don't enjoy that sort of thing. Never liked girls or new men. He accepts my sisters. So when he says a girl's story, he means like teenagers? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like a... Yeah. Like what Little Women is. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. You can see exactly who the target audience was of that. Yeah. I read it when I was like eight. It was targeted at me. <laughs> <laughs> That is correct. Precocious eight-year-olds. With the approval of her mother and remaining sisters, she started a novel which she called Little Women, a fictionalised account of her own childhood. By June, she sent the first 12 chapters to Mr. Niles, who read them and thought they were extremely boring. <laughs> <laughs> so do I, wrote Louisa in her journal, but mean to try the experiment. <laughs> He's like, this writing sucks. And she's like, well, you told me to write it, so I don't know what you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's basically what happens. On July the 15th, two and a half months from noting that she had begun the work, Louisa sent a completed manuscript at 402 pages to Mr. Niles. Very tired, head full of pains from overwork, she wrote mm. in her journal, after handwriting 402 pages in like 10 weeks. Go to bed, Louisa. Frankly, go to bed, Louisa. Niles gave it to his niece to read, understanding that he was not the target audience. Niles is a smart man. Um, and his niece and her friends thought that it was fantastic best book they'd ever read and so he went ahead with publication nice 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 um, so let's talk about little women um, <laughs> they are very small <laughs> <laughs> they are but small <laughs> they grow through the course of the book the first part of little women i will summarize extremely briefly for you because i know that you've read it you've seen the movie and i think that most of our listeners will be the same yeah one way or another so it basically details a year in the life of four sisters, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy, and their mother while their father is away fighting in the Civil War. I do think it's interesting that she turned Bronson's general ineffectiveness into, <laughs> he's just not there at all, okay? To being fully absent. <laughs> Did he fight in the Civil War? No. Interesting. I think you mentioned that, like, Bronson went to London for a while, where he picked up that... He did. He went to England when Louisa was young to collect financial backers for Fruitlands. Yeah, so maybe that's, like, influenced the absent father? I think in a lot of ways it probably just simplified the story, because mm. otherwise she would have had to spend some time developing a character for Bronson that was both sort of sympathetic and lovable the way that she saw him, but encompassed his failing to succeed at masculinity in a 19th century sense in that he could not support his family and he never did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I feel like that does kind of come across in The Dad in Little Women, but like I can't remember which of the books in the series the dad is present for, but I feel like he is very much not a traditionally masculine figure who like doesn't really provide for his family. Yeah, he comes back after the end of the first part of Little Women. 
Um, yeah. So you would see him in the second half, which you probably know as Good Wives because yeah. it was published under that title in the UK, but never had that title in Louise's intentions. So he comes back, but he is very ill with pneumonia on the front, and that's why he comes home. And so oh, I think yeah. he spends much of that second book like recovering, and then he's like in his library reading books, and you just never see him because she can't be bothered developing a character for him. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, basically. <laughs> the four sisters are thus. They all have some <laughs> virtues and some vices, and the books kind of track their attempts to be good Christian girls and overcome their vices. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So Meg, the oldest sister, is extremely beautiful, but sometimes struggles with vanity because she's so hot. <laughs> <laughs> Life's hot. <laughs> Life's hot for Meg. Beth is a very anxious person, and so that's the vice that she's trying to overcome. She's trying to be more courageous. Um, Amy is kind of a spoiled brat, but good at heart. <laughs> um, and then there is Joe, Louise's self-insert. Yeah. This isn't in any way a radical novel. I want to be clear about that. It kind of demonstrates the perceived moral virtue of women repressing their anger, being modest, building their lives around the men in their lives, suffering as a virtue... Christian guilt as a virtue. It's not a radical novel in any sense. However, there is some stuff going on. (laughs) Let's talk about Jo. The first time we meet Jo, she's lying on the rug in front of the the fire, examining the heels of her shoes in a gentlemanly manner. Just going right in there. Just going straight in there. Misconceptions. Her her very first introduction is Jo examining her shoes in a gentlemanly manner and saying, I wish I was a boy. Straight Um, to the point. Straight to the point. Jo immediately sat up, put her hands in her pockets, and began to whistle. Don't, Jo, it's so boyish. That's why I do it. Really hammering that home. And then Meg goes on to tell Jo that she's too old now for this. She should remember that she's a young lady. I'm not, says Jo. And if turning up my hair makes me one, I'll wear it in two tails till I'm twenty. I hate to think I've got to grow up and be Miss March and wear long gowns and look as prim as a china aster. I don't know what that means. It doesn't matter to us. (laughs) I guess it's a doll. Yeah. It's bad enough to be a girl anyway, when I like boys' games and work and manners. I can't get over my disappointment at not being a boy. And it's worse than ever now, for I'm dying to go and fight with Papa. That's our very first introduction to Joe. literally within the first page. It's like, so this is Joe. Joe has some things about gender. Yeah, that's like Joe's number one characteristic. That is indeed Joe's number one characteristic. I think that that's worth discussing, because Joe is like... Very overtly, Louisa's self-insert character. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Louisa is constantly saying things about herself, like in a letter to a friend, I was born with a boy's nature and always had more sympathy for and interest in them than in girls and have fought my fight with a boy's spirit under my bib and tucker and a boy's wrath when I got floored. And in this context, she's writing about her struggle to earn money and achieve financial independence. Mm -hmm. And like I said before, she generally couches her desire for masculinity in those kinds of terms. She's like, I wish I could be a man so I could go and fight. And we have that infamous quote, which you've probably seen, um, which goes, I am more than half persuaded that I'm a man's soul put by some freak of nature into a woman's body because I have fallen in love in my life with so many pretty girls and never once the least bit with any man. Um, okay. Which doesn't really 
match up with anything else that we see in Louise's writings in terms of her sexuality. But I do think it's interesting that every time she expresses her desire for masculinity, Mm. it has a kind of secondary reason. But she cuts that all out for Joe. Joe wants to be a boy just in a lot of ways. Joe is just like, I'm a boy. I like boys' manners and boys' games, and that's how I wish to be. Yeah, that's quite interesting. Obviously, sometimes you can kind of look at private journals and be like, well, this is more honest than any kind of public writing. Yeah. But in this case, that's not necessarily the case because she was clearly writing her journals for an audience of some description. Yeah, or even if not, she's clearly writing her journals often more to construct the person she wishes she was Mm. than to the person she actually is. And the other characters, at least this early in the book, are quite sympathetic to Joe's masculinity. Like Beth, when Joe says this, and I forget exactly how she words it, but her next line is like, it's too bad, Joe. I'm so sorry. That's dreadful. Like Mm. that you long to be a boy so much and there's nothing that you can do about it. Yeah, so the story's not treating it as most stories are, you know, even even now would uh, would treat that of like, oh, that's silly, you'll grow out of it, you know, like, you know, you'll grow up and be a nice lady and find a nice man. Yeah, no, Beth takes her quite seriously and is sort of like, I'm so sorry, there's nothing that we can do about that. You have to make the best of Mm. the situation Mm. that you're stuck in, essentially. Yeah, and that's interesting given the sort of other things you were saying about the, like, philosophy of this story, of it being sort of making the best of a situation. Yeah, yeah. Sort of valuing that as a, like, Christian virtue. Yeah. Hmm. I was also thinking about how, Jason, when you were talking about, you know, you might think somebody would be more honest in their diaries, but we wouldn't necessarily think that here because she was writing her diaries with a view to Mm. them either becoming published works in their own right or influencing published works you could and you know this is speculation you could argue that she may be more honest in her fiction because it's a step removed and a way to like write about herself without putting herself on the line yeah that's sort of what i thought it has this sense of sort of plausible deniability in it where if anybody questions her about joe's desires or joe's behaviors she has the immediate defense of like well obviously i exaggerated it for the book yeah Mm. yeah Oh. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah. Obviously, I just want to be a man, but in a normal way. <laughs> <laughs> just to support my sisters. Yeah. Yeah. So why do you think that Louisa May Alcott is a gender nonconforming woman and not a trans man? Um, Because she very much also is very invested in the concept of sisterhood. Yeah. And that's yeah. something you see very strongly in Little Women as well, mm-hmm. Um, in mm-hmm. the concept of sisterhood, in the relationships that daughters have with mothers. Yeah. Yeah. And things like that. I wanted to sort of honour that aspect of her as well. She also writes a lot about her identification with womanhood. She's very involved in the women's suffrage movement. She is one of the first seven women to vote in her town. I mean, if you're Um, assigned female at birth and people assigned female at birth can't vote, I wouldn't say that being involved in women's suffrage proves you're a woman. She's involved in women's organisations. She's part of the founding of a women's union. She also writes a lot about spinsters ah yes. and this is an identity that she takes on quite strongly mm-hmm. she calls herself a spinster she often says you know i'd rather remain a spinster in 1868 for valentine's day she publishes this piece called happy women which essentially details the sort of semi-fictional lives of four women who have chosen not to marry mm-hmm. and finishes with the following 
following words. My sisters, don't be afraid of the words old maid, for it is in your power to make this a term of honour, not of reproach. It's not necessary to be a sour, spiteful spinster with nothing to do but brew tea, talk (laughs) scandal and tend a pocket handkerchief. No, the world is full of work, needing all the heads, hearts and hands we can bring to it. And she finishes by essentially saying, be true to yourselves, cherish whatever talent you possess. And in using it faithfully for the good of others, you will most assuredly find happiness for yourself and make no life of failure, but a beautiful success. And I feel like I sort of chose her identity as a spinster and as a single Mm. woman with masculine traits to be kind of how I understood her. That makes sense. So I don't want to say Louisa was not a trans man. Mm. And I think it's certainly plausible to say something like, I mean, I don't know. I could pick a lot of random periods of time in the future from where Louisa was and be like, how would she have identified now? Does Louisa (laughs) consider herself a butch lesbian if she was born in 1978? We don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, is Louisa non-binary now? How does Louisa, you know, is Louisa ace today? Is Louisa aromantic today? There's a lot of things we could do in that kind of area. Mm -hmm. And I know we've talked a lot before about the connections and kind of blurry boundaries between sexual orientation and gender Mm -hmm. yeah which we often sort of claim as distinct categories but they're very much not especially in older texts because they just don't conceptualize them that way yeah and so i think that for louisa her Gender nonconformity is just very linked to that idea of spinsterhood. Mm-hmm. Her decision not to marry. It's like a masculine independence. Yeah, yeah. Um, if that makes sense? I think that makes sense. And I think the way you said it where you were like, I'm talking about kind of two aspects of her identity. One aspect of her identity is this kind of feeling of masculinity, which she links to independence and being yeah. able to support her family. And another aspect of her identity is this feeling of sisterhood and wanting, you know, to focus on relationships between women and women supporting each other and women supporting themselves. Yeah. Yeah, like those are both aspects of her identity that we could hone in on them individually and say, this is the important one. Louisa was a man, or this is the important one. Louisa was a lesbian, to use the word lesbian in a more kind of 1970s, focusing a life around women sense. Yeah. But, you know, there's no reason to hone in on one of the two when they're both aspects of her identity that she tied together. Yeah. And so I've essentially made that decision where. In Louise's writing, she often calls herself a woman or a topsy-turvy mm-hmm. girl quite a lot. Topsy-turvy Louisa. <laughs> That's <laughs> um, very cute. And she will use feminine pronouns for herself mm. um, most of the time. Most sometimes, of the time? Yeah, sometimes she does say that she's the son of the family while the father's off doing something like that. Oh, something. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And things like that. Or that she's the son of the family because she's supporting her sisters. Yeah. Mm. So she often uses masculine terms for herself in that context where she mm-hmm. calls herself Papa to Anna's sons after Anna's husband dies. Oh, Because, again, she's the one who's bringing in the money. So she has this very clear sense of father as breadwinner, which her father has interestingly never achieved. I guess that's partly why she's taken on that identity. Like, okay, somebody's got to bring in the bread. (laughs) Somebody has to fill the father role. My father is (laughs) filling a different father role. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really interesting in terms of like, obviously, she had a lot of thoughts about societal roles yeah. of women and where she fit into different societal roles. And, like, you know, as we've kind of been getting at, there's kind of these two facets where you've got this idea of that she has of herself as the breadwinner, as the son, as the, you know, 
the father of the family. Yeah. Versus this idea of, like, spinsterhood and, you know, being able to form these close relationships with other women and, you know, maintain these close yeah. relationships with her sisters and that being very important to her as well. Yeah, and forming and, these kind of, I guess, networks of, like, women supporting women. Mm-hmm. So you get that a lot with, like, the women's rights and yeah. the women's activism element of what she's doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's pretty much impossible to tell you know, to what extent both of those things are shaped by the societal circumstances in which she found herself, right? Like, obviously they both were to a large extent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, what that says about her own internal feelings about gender and Mm. her own identity and how that would, you know, as you said, like, there's no real way to translate that into a modern context necessarily. Yeah. Mm. Um, with any degree of, you know, confidence. Yeah. 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 And I think especially in the case of sex and gender, it becomes very complicated to translate someone like Louisa, who inhabits a sort of dually gendered position. It becomes very complicated to translate that into a modern sense because, Louisa has no concept of the distinction between sex and gender that we have Mm. or the idea of like gender presentation or, Mm. or like gendered social roles. Obviously she understands, but she doesn't have like the ways that she conceives and talks about these things. Don't clearly delineate the same things that we would separate out. Yeah. And so I think that, yeah, translating that into modern terminology becomes quite difficult. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I don't think we have to translate that in modern terminology, you know. Obviously we have to talk about Louisa in some language. Yeah, I often find this when looking at gender in a historical context, is that you do have to make a decision. Mm. Or even if you're talking about the gender of someone who doesn't speak English, you have to make these decisions about how to apply modern English gender and modern English pronouns to somebody who just wouldn't have used them in the same way that we do. Yeah, like our languages, our language forces us to gender people or to use non-gendered pronouns, which just because of the way English operates at the moment is also a conscious choice that you kind of have to consciously make. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, we do not yet have the technology to broadcast the direct thoughts and opinions and feelings of historical figures directly (laughs) into your brains, listeners. (laughs) We're working on it. So, um, donate to our Patreon. (laughs) As you know, Alice, and you probably don't, Jason, because I believe that the ending of the most recent Little Women movie is actually changed from what happened in the book. Oh. Yes, I believe I've heard Um, that. So. As you know, Alice, Louisa in the second part of Little Women found Joe a husband. (laughs) Yes. I understand she did it reluctantly. She did indeed do it reluctantly. So in the second part of Little Women, Louisa married Joe off to an older German professor named Professor Bear. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, this is all news to me. (laughs) Picture Um, a man named Professor Bear. That's exactly who this character is. Um, I'm picturing Paddington. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That's not wrong. Um, The plot line is essentially that Joe goes to New York to seek her fortune as a writer. She writes a bunch of sensationalist stories as Louisa did, like thrillers for magazines and things. Mm -hmm. And she lives in a boarding house. And Professor Bear is one of the other inhabitants of the boarding house. And he teaches her German in exchange for her mending his socks. (laughs) (laughs) Zero (laughs) mantis. Correct. Um, And then they fall in love. They have a dramatic love confession scene in a rainstorm and then they get married and pop out babies. 
As you mentioned, Louisa was not keen on that decision. (laughs) Yes. She wrote to a friend, Elizabeth Powell, as she was writing the novel, Joe should have remained a literary spinster, but so many enthusiastic young ladies wrote to me clamorously demanding that she should marry Laura, or at least somebody, <laughs> that I didn't dare refuse, and out of perversity went and made a funny match for her. I knew that, like, because I know that obviously the Joe Laurie shippers were very strong, and spoilers for Little Women, Laurie marries Amy, and I knew that she'd done that out of spite. <laughs> She did, in fact, do that out of spite. And she says, I expect vials of wrath to be poured out upon my head, but rather enjoy the prospect. <laughs> I didn't realise exactly the motivation behind the spite. Thank you, the spite. So, essentially, that's what happens. And Greta Gerwig, in the Little Women movie, and I'm going to have to ask you to confirm this, Jason, because I haven't actually seen it. I understand that she changed the ending and Joe does not get married. Uh, yes, she does not get married, and, you know, basically the movie ends with uh, the publisher refusing to accept the protagonist of Joe's book remaining unmarried. Ah, uh, <laughs> yes, I see, I see. I quite like that. I think that's a good way to honour what Louisa would have actually wanted. <laughs> yeah, and that's how Greta spoke about it. She says that she's returning Joe's true ending to her. Yeah. Essentially. And she felt like she was honouring Louisa May Alcott's intentions in a way that Louisa's actual work had not done. I like that. I think that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like from what you've said that, yeah, Louisa wasn't particularly keen on this. The fact that, you know, obviously Joe is such a self-insert character and Louisa herself, from my understanding, I think you said this earlier, remains unmarried. She remains unmarried for her whole life and she's quite strong about like spinster as an identity. Yeah. Mm. Um, There's Mm. no time in her writing that I ever saw her express a wish to get married or she's quite fond of children but she has no desire to sort of have a conventional family life yeah and i mean in the film at least uh, again i haven't read the book <laughs> um joe ends by opening a school yeah yeah That's yeah, what yeah. yeah that is what she does in the book but in the book she does it with her husband mr bear you read all of these didn't you yeah, you yeah, made yeah. it as far as joe's boys or whatever the last one is did you find reading the whole series that they became kind of more conventional and more traditionalist as they went on? I haven't read the whole series in a long time, so it's kind of hard to say, but I guess if you take it from the perspective of Joe, it does insofar as that Joe starts out as this really independent girl, obviously, who, you know, doesn't want anything to do with traditional marriage or anything like that, and ends up married with kids. Yeah. Does Joe continue to write? Like, is Joe still a writer at the end? Does Joe still have any... I can't remember if she still writes or not. I don't know. Yeah, I have to reread them. I understand that you read these when you were like 12 years old. Yeah, I haven't read them in a long time. (laughs) Um, So I'm sorry that I told you to do like academic level analysis on your (laughs) memories of a book you read in childhood. Yeah. Um, I can't do that. I'm sorry. sorry. Little Women was a huge success. And within a few months of the publishing of the first volume, her publisher asked for a second, which she also knocked out in a couple of months and had on shelves by the next year. So is that second volume what we call Good Wives? Yes. So what did she call it? Little Women Part 2. Okay. (laughs) They're often often published as a single volume. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, And Little Women Part 2 opens, I think, three years later with, like, a little summary of everything they've got up to in between. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, she she conceived of them as, like, two parts of the same volume. Mm -hmm. For some reason in the UK it was given... An exciting new kind of heteronormative title. <laughs> it sure was. 
Which I guess is not that much more heteronormative than Little Women was. I mean, like, Little Women, they are young women. Like, they're teen girls. So, like, yeah. I don't think that's as bad as, like, good wives. <laughs> yeah. And I guess Little Women is, in a lot of ways, kind of about Joe's interaction with the concept of being a young woman. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, it's a book about being a young woman. So, like, that um, makes sense. Which, like, a book about how you feel about being a young woman is kind of a different book, I guess, to a book about being a good wife. Yeah. Um, These books and their subsequent several sequels essentially cemented Louise's financial stability and fame for the rest of her life. Good for her. I'm glad. I'm glad for her. She finally gets to, like, install a furnace in her parents' house so they can be cozy in winter. Jesus. They're going to have a hot bath. Yeah. <laughs> Illegal. <laughs> Illegal. I mean, it was the 19th century. They were probably heating water over the fire. I, I know, yeah. but I just couldn't resist. <laughs> yeah, so they got to have hot baths for the first time, except maybe Bronson. <laughs> I'm thinking about, like, the vibe of the family and Little Women is, like, they're a very, like, close family. Yeah. They, like, tease each other and that kind of thing. And I'm just assuming that Bronson copped a lot of flag for the rest of his life every time he took a bath. <laughs> Every time that Bronson lit a lamp, they were all like, oh, straying from nature, Bronson. Yeah. <laughs> so this allowed Louisa to finally install her older sister Anna and Anna's children and her, both her parents and May in the lives that she always hoped to provide for them. So she bought Anna a house. She gave her parents a furnace and some nice things, got their house looking nice. She paid for May to go to Europe and study art. Nice, nice, nice. Everything went very well for her family. She was always a little bit bitter about the fact she felt she had kind of sacrificed a lot of her Mm. dreams and her intentions in order to provide for her family. Ah, yeah, Um, yeah. As I said before about her writing, she always talked about her, you know, lurid tales and her silly little scribblings. Mm -hmm. And she was always sort of hoping that one day she would find the time to come back to her serious works such as revisiting moods, which the first time she didn't really feel that she had communicated her intentions correctly. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think I'm just remembering you asked if she writes in the later books of the Little Women series, and I think she does, and I think she conveys a lot of that feeling. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That feeling of, like, her not being able to write the things that she really wants to now. Yeah, and wanting to kind of write the serious stuff, but that's not what the publishers want. Like, I think she conveys a lot of that within that book. Oh, that's very interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That feeling of somewhat resentment for the role that it really seems like she kind of made for herself yeah. is a really interesting yeah. push-pull in terms of, like, like it does seem to some extent that she was expressing some feelings of gender, however you want to define yeah. that, through the way that she, you know, lived her life. Mm. Um, and... You know, obviously that came with a large amount of sacrifices. Yeah. Um, And those sacrifices weren't just of, you know, what society defined as traditional, like, success for a woman, i.e. having a husband and a family. It's also just a lot of really hard work that she did uh, to sacrifice for her family. Doubly hard work because she was, in a social sense, a woman. Mm. And so it became much harder work in terms of the kinds of jobs she could take, the kind of pay she would get for her. Mm. writing yeah yeah it did kind of make for a frustrating read of her journals because you would often see her like exhausted and resentful of her family and you'd be there and you'd be like louisa you have two adult sisters (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. You yeah. don't have to do this alone. Yeah, yeah. But she, yeah, very much sort of felt that she, she did. did have to do it alone to sort of prove herself. Mm. Yeah. Whether that, that was in a gender way or a, yeah. Yeah, that compulsion is really interesting to me. Yeah, and I do think that was something I sort of thought interesting, and I've said it much earlier when I was talking about Louise's, like, things she says about her own gender compared to what she has Joe say about her gender, mm. the, the, like, sort of language and the terms that she couches her, like, sort of masculine goals in. Mm-hmm. She always talks about sort of being the man of the family in the context of earning money. And I think that you're right, Jason, that that sort of given that she's sort of forced this role on herself, mm. that her her desire to support her family is kind of a gender thing. Yeah, like I think there's a degree of, and you know, I think this kind of comes up in the movie and so probably therefore also comes up in the book of that thing of the family sort of being like, hey, you don't need to yeah always be the one who's kind of controlling and always be the one who's you know supporting everyone yeah yeah yeah. and so i imagine those are things that she'd heard from her family as well Mm. yeah um, yeah in real life and so yeah so i think there's definitely something interesting going on there Mm. yeah it almost feels not quite selfish but there is an extent to which she's as we've kind of been saying like making a rod for her own back yeah that then leads to her feeling resentful for having done something that she didn't have to do necessarily. <laughs> At least she yeah. didn't have to do it in the way that she did it, but she felt a need to do it in that way. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's sort of worth noting that the first two volumes of Little Women were extremely financially successful, and she was advised by her publisher right at the start that she should keep the copyright. So she was getting royalties for both of those books. Mm -hmm. The whole time. But at no time does she feel like she can stop writing. At no time is she like, I can stop writing about little women. I can write the things that I want now. Mm -hmm. Even though she is sort of consistently getting a steady income, she still maintains this sense that she has to write commercially successful work. Yeah. Yeah. For something for her family for, yeah, Yeah, it's very unclear sort of what her goal is with that towards the end yeah yeah it's interesting that almost in the pursuit of fulfilling her kind of desired social role she's leaving herself unfulfilled in other aspects of herself yeah 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 and in particular she sort of talks about being envious of may because she's like i paid for her to go to europe and have drawing lessons and she kind of got to pursue this artistic side of herself in a much more formal way mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. than Louisa ever did. And it's sort of, it's a very sort of conflicting thing where it's like, this is a gift that I've given to her that I kind of resent her for having. And it's yeah. like, you could have just given that gift to yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We move on to the final years of Louisa's life here. In 1879, May, who was living in Switzerland at the time with her European husband, gave birth to a daughter who she named Louisa May after her beloved sister. Louisa wanted to travel to Europe to see May and her daughter, but she wasn't well enough at the time. The first news that reached America was that all seemed well with mother and child. Everything was great. The child Mm -hmm. was beautiful. Everyone was very happy. (laughs) This baby's not ugly. (laughs) This baby's not ugly. No, not at all. However, May failed to recover and died in December of 1879. 
some six weeks after the birth of the child. She left her new baby in Louise's care in her will. What happened to the husband, you may ask? I, I was intending to ask. <laughs> I kind of wasn't. <laughs> in his grief, he figured he was not prepared to raise a child right now, and he went off to South America on his own. Okay. Where he lived a wild life for some years and was eventually reunited with his daughter. What do you mean when you say a wild life? He just went there. He was an adventurer. <laughs> That's just a thing you can be. Yeah, we don't know. And later on, he did reunite with Lulu. Lulu. Um, yeah, well, they couldn't also call her Louisa. That's that was Louisa's name. That's basically. This is how we end up with the nonsense nicknames people used to have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lulu, along with Sophie, who was May's sister-in-law, um, mm-hmm. her husband's sister, travelled to America together and... The small Lulu was brought to Louisa. Louisa wasn't well enough to raise the child on her own Mm. at this stage. Lulu was kind of adopted into the Alcott family network as a whole. Mm -hmm. Um, So she was raised between Anna and and Louisa and assorted other family friends and relatives. Okay. I guess, you know, that kind of transcendentalist framework is pretty good (laughs) for this specific kind of thing. Yeah. And I guess we already know that, like, Louisa was playing a kind of fatherly role to Anna's kids. Yeah. You can see how they could be raising a child together very easily. Yeah. Mm. But she very much considered Lulu to be her child. She writes upon the arrival of Lulu in America, It has been a hard year for all, but when I hold my Lulu, I feel as if even death had its compensations. A whole new world for me has opened. Hmm. So that is her... Little baby. Due to ongoing problems with headaches, dizziness, and vertigo, Louisa was confined to only an hour a day of writing for much of this period, as her doctor thought that too much thinking was damaging her health. Okay. 19th century doctoring, you know. Yes. So she devoted much of it to writing and collating three collections of short stories, which she called Lulu's Library. Oh, that's Aww. very cute. That's incredibly sweet. It seemed very sweet. Her relationship with... Lulu was delightful. Lulu called her Aunt Wee Wee <laughs> because she couldn't <laughs> say Louisa. <laughs> oh, that's very cute. In 1886, she published the final volume of the Little Women series, Joe's Boys. She had never been particularly fond of the books. Whenever she had a chance to write something else, she was like, thank God, sick of writing moral pap for the young, as she said. Um, <laughs> they are very moral students. <laughs> and in a letter to a friend, she described how she was tempted to end the entire story with an earthquake that killed everyone. <laughs> she did not do that. That would have been so funny. She was like, I only put in the appropriate number of deaths. Everyone lived happily ever after. <laughs> um, on March the 1st of 1888, Louisa's father, Bronson, who never completely recovered from a stroke he had had some years earlier, became bedridden. Louisa went to see him in spite of ill health. In her journal, she records his last words being, I'm going up, Louisa. Come with me. He passed away on March the 4th. Two days after his death, on March the 6th, aged 55, Louisa also passed away. Louisa was largely remembered as a writer of what she would have called moral pap for the young <laughs> at this stage, until 1975, when one of her pseudonyms was discovered and several books of lurid thrillers were unearthed and then published. Ooh. That's amazing. That's cool. I'm keen to read these lurid thrillers. I wonder if that's the book of stories I have on my shelf. I hope so. Literally just like straight up stories about women murdering people. I'm just amazed that this was found in 1975. Yeah. Like, that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting 
in terms of research in the ways that it like wildly changes the way that feminist academics speak about her. Mm, yeah. From sort of thinking of her as like a kind of drab oppressed 19th century American Christian woman mm. writing virtuous stories. And then they're like, hang on a second. What is this? <laughs> <laughs> what are these salacious crumbs? Gradually, she has come to be seen as a more complicated figure than you might initially think. Yeah, it's been quite interesting to learn all about her life, having read Little Women as a kid. And, like, it is very much, you know, it's a very Christian, very moralistic book, but there are hints in it that there's more to the author than that. Like, when she talks within the books about wanting to write other works or, you know, it's very clear that Joe's really set up not to marry and not to live that life, and then suddenly she does. Like, there's yeah. really hints that there's more going on than what you get in the book, so it's interesting to know what happened behind that. Yeah, like, I very much remember finding that marriage strange and, like, forced, even when I was a kid. Yeah, like, Mr. Bear is an inherently funny character. And he just kind of <laughs> appears out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. And it makes a lot more sense when you know how and why he was put in. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm still Irene. I'm Alice. And I'm Jason. If you enjoyed that episode, you can find the rest of our episodes, presumably wherever you found that one, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Podbean, and on any good podcatcher. Um, I'm imagining a weird scenario here where somebody picked up a USB off the street and it turned <laughs> out to have one Queerest Fact episode on Like it. getting music um, in the 2000s. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In that case, go back to that street corner. You may see more. <laughs> We're also on social media, on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook as Queerest Fact. If you want to email us directly, we are queerestfact at gmail.com. If you wanted to support us financially, you can join our Patreon or we have a Redbubble store where you can buy things with our logo on them. Um, or some things with queer people's names on them and our logo, I believe. Those are the two lines of merch we have, yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't want to support us financially, tell your friends about us anyway. Hopefully they'll think that we're good. Just sneak them a USB. <laughs> just leave a USB on a street corner. If you've forgotten everything I just said, you can find all that information on our website, which is queerasfact.com. You can also find source posts for our episodes here. Thank you for listening. We'll see you on the 1st of February. 